obviously I think that most of the Western world has come to a completely nonsense understanding. Now, I claim I have the correct understanding, and I'm claiming that because my understanding actually achieves the causal, the causal aspects of the scenario. So let me give you five points that if you can show me are wrong, then you will have refuted my scenario and there'd be no recourse. So here's the first Show me that it is possible for water to become gaseous and ambient temperatures, and that is go ahead and show us the experimental evidence or whatever evidence you, anything close, you don't have to have actually done the experiment yourself, but show us something that's empirical that will demonstrate that this belief on my part is wrong and that therefore there is gaseous H2 existent at ambient temperatures when I say that it's impossible and that the only reason that it appears as such is because H2O forms incredibly small nano droplets that appear invisible to us because our eyesight is just not that good to see things that small. In fact, there's things hundreds of times larger that we can't see in the atmosphere. Something that plainly contradicts reality. You'll just end up so confused right from the start, you'll just be looking for anything that allows you to avoid the subject. And that's the spirit of the whole discipline when it comes to studying water. That's the central attitude everybody on the planet has taken. Till you realize that H2O is genuinely a solvent of its own polarity, and that only when you can reduce, that this is an important point, only when you can reduce the degree of connectedness between H2O molecules can you have structural properties. So to get to structure in H2O, you have to find conditions in which a lot of the hydrogen bonds are stripped out. Now we find that on Newtonian fluids, we find that in the atmosphere in the context of vortices, we find that on the surface of water. We also, and this is the one that confuses everybody, find the same thing in ice. The ice we all think of as something that we're, where the molecules get closer together. But what really happens in ice, because of the way molecules fall in and twist against each other, actually more space is created in ice, and that space is instrumental in making ice a much higher polarity substance than water. Think about that. Ice has a whole bunch of its polarity turned back back on again, and that's why it's so hard, but it does that be not because it's becoming more dense. It does that because the way it falls against each other, the way it tends to freeze, causes a bunch of breakage of hydrogen bonds. Did you get that? In ice, you have a lot of breakage of hydrogen bonds internally in the bulk of the water, and it is this breakage of bonds that creates the surface, and now you have surface tension in a three-dimensional manner. Now, keep in mind, surface tension is just the polarity of certain molecules being turned back on, right? That's all. Surface tension on the surface. Any kind of tensional forces are just polarity being turned back on. So that's really what's happening in, a, in ice. They're not lining up into a, um, a lattice. That's such perfect nonsense. It's, it's surreal that anyone falls for that. There's no lattice in ice. What's going on in ice is there's a whole bunch of bonds being broken. And it's not because of anything other than the fact that the way molecules tend to fall against each other, sometimes they just lock each other open. And that causes more structural hardness. And then that spreads because they keep interrupting each other's ability to maintain the perfect four hydrogen bond that each H2O molecule needs to have low polarity. And since it no longer is able to have low polarity. What happens in ice is their polarity is being turned back on. That's what's going on. Their polarity is being turned back on. 
because there's a bunch of bonds being broken therein. And the reason it, it's less dense is because of the exact reason I just described. They're twisting against each other and creating all this space. A whole bunch of space is being created inside of ice relative to liquid. It has to do with the fact that surfaces are appearing within. That's what it is. Surfaces are appearing within. Bonds are being broken. Polarity is expanding. It's higher. And that gives us the structural strength that we see in ice. So that's really the magic of water, is there is this incredible structural capability. We see it in ice. We see it in non-Newtonian fluids. We see it on the surface of water. And I'm telling you, we also see it in atmospheric vortices. Explain to me how it's possible for this tube to not actually be genuinely structural in order to display the behaviors we see in a common tornado. In other words, these behaviors are perfectly consistent with something that has structure to it, including the fact that it seems to seal itself on the ground in an aggressive manner. Explain how that can be possible, if not for the fact that there's something structural in the atmosphere. That's one part of the question. The other part of the question is, if you do agree that it is structural, and I'm, I think you're, if you're reasonable, you would have to, explain to me what would be the basis of that structural capability if it's not actually water as described in my model. Now, if you were to say to me, well, show us that it's structural, I go, well, we have all these observations. You know, we have the things I just discussed. The fact that tornadoes are incredibly destructive, and it's just impossible for me to believe that, that there's not something more there than just wind and water. There's something else going on. And I have an explanation that has to do with structural capabilities appearing on the scene under situational factors that look very similar to what we see on wind shear boundaries. Of course, doing this would be very difficult for anybody. I understand that. Because you would have to understand my scenario. You, you would have had to have messed around with it for a while before you could get to this point. And you would have to have confronted the vagueness of the current paradigm, which is just overwhelming. That's the main reason people quit when they get into this, because there's just nothing there. There's just continuing conversation in which everyone just assumes the same thing. That's our current paradigm. There's no real thought involved. That's just the reality of it. Now, regardless of whether you would agree with me that we can also see in the tube itself, we can kind of see a structural element to it. Explain to me how it's possible for that to be the case if there was not something structural about the tube of the tornado such that the air inside the tube and the air outside the tube didn't just readily mix. Explain how a tornado is able to maintain the focus of the flow of the air going up the tube of the tornado and the circulation of the air going around that flow and how it is possible for that to continue. Explain how those molecules are able to take a circular path. Explain how we can see demonstrated very vividly on the ground that there's a huge difference in the energy and pressure of the air within the tube and the fact that just outside of there could be relatively little activity. If not for the fact that H2O was acting in a structural manner to focus flow by way of its just natural tendency to form vortices. Explain to me how that's all possible, if not for the fact that water has structural properties. Wind would never focus on its own, and yet we have focus, we have concentrated winds, we have gustiness. You know, think about that, gustiness. 
how can gustiness exist? We're living on a planet where there's just entropy is overwhelming, right? And so everything should be spreading out. Well, pressure differences allow for there to be a source of the energy. Uh, secondly, we have boundaries. We have wind shear boundaries. And on these, a situational factor happens in the atmosphere that doesn't happen anywhere else. And you have molecules banging into each other at high speeds over long distances and vast areas, creating something called wind shear. And this causes the emergence of different type of substance. Substance that's associated with high speed by its nature and at one and the same time is structural and that these two are complementary to each other by the way you know it being structural and high speed because most of the atmosphere all these molecules are just kind of randomly bumping around in, into each other and there's no basis of any gustiness or flow explain how that can be possible if not for there being something in the atmosphere that's providing the structure there would have to be some other explanation because it's so overwhelming I suppose people are going to respond to this and say, oh, we already have an explanation. You know, we have the convection model of storm theory. Well, that's complete nonsense. Well, I've discussed that previously. It's not really anything that we should take seriously. That's what the convection model of storm theory really is. It's not anything that we should take seriously. The jet stream must be getting its energy from somewhere, from something, from some process. can't just maintain that high speed without there being something pushing it. Now, they believe that it's powered by convection, which is a meaningless claim since convection is only a vertical process. My model says it's got nothing to do with anything as vague as that, buoyancy, whatever you want to call it. This is, has relatively little to do with anything that happens in the atmosphere. What's really happening in the atmosphere involves these vortices at very high altitude on the top of the troposphere, and they do all the work. They do all the movement, and they're based on physical principles that are comprehensible, but only if you first understand the plasma that's involved. That's what my model says. And their model just doesn't deal with it. So provide that missing explanation. And if you could show me that that thinking is wrong, that there's major errors in it or something like that, and keep in mind one of its main assumptions is the existence of vortices in and of themselves. So that's something, again, you would want to go back to number three and address that first if you were concerned about that here. But then just show us. Show us why the jet streams go as they do. Show us why storms are associated with jet streams. Now, is that an easy thing? No. <laughs> that is a very difficult thing because there's just so many parts of the atmosphere you'd have to already understand. And frankly, the understanding isn't really even out there anywhere. It's just such a confused paradigm. Mixes in the climatology to some degree. There's arguments there about what's really causing anything. And they're almost always silly, stupid, nonsense arguments based on a greater paradigm that is almost completely confused. So let me repeat that. The greater paradigm, or the standard paradigm, is almost completely confused. It's almost completely nonsensical. I suppose you might consider that to be controversial. I don't consider it controversial. I consider it obvious. But regardless of whether it's controversial or not, who cares? If you can show me that what I'm saying couldn't happen, I would have to drop my theory. Or if you could show me that what you're saying here makes sense, the jet stream simply has not been explained by their model. And frankly, my model explains it perfectly. But my advantage, of course, is understanding the nature of water in the atmosphere. I have so many more tools available to me because of my understanding of water. I don't need to even consider some of these things that are, that are so vague as to be incomprehensible. Vagueness is never a good sign in science. 
nevertheless, it's what people almost always rely on when they're confused. So show me you're not confused. Show me you actually, you won't be able to do it, by the way. Trust me, it's very difficult. Um, but anyway, that's number four. Explain the jet stream. At jet stream. For this last one, number five, it has to do with the nature of whether or not our claims about being able to steer a hurricane are reasonable. Keep in mind, there's a whole bunch of assumptions associated with this. So I want to first of all kind of clarify all that. A lot of it is stuff, though, that we've already covered, so we won't have to repeat it, such as the existence of vortices, the existence of a place in the atmosphere called the jet stream, where there's a lot of high-energy, low-pressure air moving very fast, water having these capabilities that science has been intentionally or even deliberately ignorant of, that they're not that strong, that it wouldn't take much to pop one of these things as long as you approach it correctly and deal with its tendency to be a substance that's going to aggressively try to rejoin in itself. Because one of the characteristics of any form of surface tension when it comes to maintaining a seal is that it has a tendency to do that. Thus, the reason bubbles exist. You know, it has a tendency to, to want to complete itself, to completely envelop and maintain it that envelopment by way of spread of surface tension around it. Well, this is another situation that has the same th thing. It's a spread of surface tension. It's a completely different type of surface tension, of course. Much more high energy. It's much broader. It's, it's much, it can only occur under extreme conditions like we see in wind shear, but nevertheless, it's surface tension. It'll act as such. It will be very aggressive about maintaining contact with itself but if you bisect that long enough, and it shouldn't be that hard, you pop the bubble. So bisection is the way to go. And if we wanted to pop a bubble and thereby prevent the delivery of any low pressure energy down that bubble. Now, presumably these things will be something that can be found, you know, located in the atmosphere using who knows whatever devices and whatever there's a number of different ways to do it. I won't go into that now, but we should be able to find them. Then once we find them, we should be able to destroy them really pretty easily, pretty easily. And without really a lot of expensive technology either. It's something that can be deployed from an aircraft that could then, uh, using drones or something, carry a sheet and carry the sheet in such a way it directs it to bisect the, the entity, which again, shouldn't be that hard. So the purpose of today's talk is to fill in some of the details on five points that you can attack my theory. You can disprove even one of the five. You don't have to disprove all five of them, just one of them. Then you will have essentially refuted my theory. Topic being the physics of storms, cause and effect, structural elements of the atmosphere, and the general flow of the atmosphere. And again, all of this is in terms of physical principles, cause and effect. We want to, as much as possible, come up with thinking that's reducible to physical principles, such that it does make fundamental sense, and it doesn't dispute any of these principles. You know, it doesn't make challenges that go outside the scope of the principles, and it, it doesn't produce a brand new principle out of the air. So these are the things we're going to be looking at here. But again, it's going to be those one through five are the only things you need to refute it. But spinning off of each one of those are subtopics. So this might give you a second opportunity. Maybe you can go through the details of, of each one of these and, and see if you can dispute it. Energy of storms comes from the jet stream. We can think of it the same as the tributary system of a river. Every once in a while, 
one of these spinning bubbles of surface tension on steroids every time one of these things scrapes the ground what happens is is it gains a whole bunch of leverage because the ground has so much more resistance than anything else in the atmosphere where it gets the most leverage is where the energy starts to automatically get sent starts to open up the flow and they even start to combine different vortices start to come together when it gets levered we have this low pressure strong gusty cold winds uplift as a result of something in the atmosphere pulling something up we don't know what let's just say so you put these things together and you then you ask yourself well how does the energy get from there to there and so we were going over the five things that you could refute my model. Number one was boiling point of water with respect to the composition of moist air. The second one was whether or not H2O really is a solvent of its own polarity, as I described. The third one was whether or not vortices actually exist. And the, the fourth one was this idea of the jet stream being the source of the low pressure and the last one being that we can pop these bubbles and stop the delivery of the low pressure energy that being what is the source of the, of the severeness of the severe weather the low pressure energy we can greatly reduce that and we can very likely cause the hurricane to pull back out into the ocean and how these are related, leverage and the ability to create a seal, and how the atmosphere works to send energy towards where it gets the most leverage. That's what it's trying to do. Move low pressure energy down. Moves low pressure energy down, turns it into fast moving air. And that fast moving air re-energizes the jet stream itself as it provides a huge ability to balance out the pressure at different locations on the planet to actually reduce the pressure essentially at different locations on the planet by way of storms because what do storms do they deliver low pressure that's what their energy is that's what they do and vortices are the means they do it and the way h2o is able to shift its capabilities with respect to surface tension have a lot to do with what is actually happening on moist dry wind shear boundaries because that's where these conditions exist referred to as wind shear and these conditions are the conditions cause something that, to happen to the um, surface tension properties of water and it produces kind of a plasma and this plasma encircles the flow just by its nature because that's where it gets its energy it's a form of water that involves the electromagnetic elasticity of H2O as being a big, a large component of how it's even possible to do what it's doing. It's a very strong form of surface tension. It's a plasma and it's very active and it's very energetic. And this stuff encircles the flow in most of the flow that happens on the planet. This is the lead of the lead pipes of the plumbing of the atmosphere. This is just the way it works. There's this natural plumbing that emerges, and this plumbing is made of water. And this humming emerges because of wind shear. And that's the reason it all starts up on the top of the troposphere. 
Also, if you wanted to argue that the anomalies were not really anomalous, I mean, I don't think you're going to get too far with me on that one, but if you did want to make that argument, or that my understanding of anomalous is mistaken somehow, you know, if you think that's the case, feel free to make an argument to that effect. See if you can explain to me what's the correct interpretation of what is meant when people refer to H2O as having anomalous properties. I mean, I know what it means. I think anybody who thinks in a simple, rational manner knows what it means. It doesn't even need any special explanation. If, there, if you need one provided, I guess we could provide it. But um, You know, if you can prove that the par current paradigm makes sense, which means you would have to address a whole bunch of anomalies, which I know no one ever will do, so anyways, this would not be an easy one either because you would have to really understand the subject of water and nobody wants to study it. No one really cares. It's just too boring for everybody. So they just leave it, ignore it. Everyone just pretends like they understand it and everyone's really just kind of confused. And of course, I'm saying this is the reason they're confused. They're confused because H2O is genuinely a solvent of its own polarity at the rate of 25% per hydrogen bond and they can form up to four. And that's genuinely what's happening with H2O. And that genuinely describes the behavior of H2O better than anybody in the history of mankind has ever described it. That's my claim. You don't have to believe it if you don't want to, but if you want to say, hey, no, no, that's a wrong understanding. Well, you're welcome to make a case and see if you can convince me that I've made a mistake on that point. I don't think you'll get anywhere, but you know, if you're, if you're so inclined. And just the fact that you see a tube of any kind suggests that there must be something more involved than just wind and water. There has to be something going on that is structural. The fact that we can even see structure tells us there must be structural properties.